Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of PL. Um, <clears throat> we're going to do the week that was, first of all, before we get to this week's guest. And you'll be pleased to hear we're talking liquidity with this week's guest, so there's plenty of room for my prejudices to um, to come through. In terms of the news, fairly quiet week. I think you know, we're in the middle of the Northern Hemisphere summer, so um, things tend to slow down a bit. There was a, a bit of excitement around um, the decision by the East London Employment Tribunal to uh, find in favour of Rohan Ramchandani, City's former foreign exchange trader, who was suing the bank for unfair dismissal. I mean, he was also um, seeking his old job back, which would have entitled him to back pay. So it was a big thing in terms of the finances, particularly for the individual. Um, what actually happened, I think, is probably no surprise. And I think I'm a little surprised people got excited about it because I think we knew from previous issues with the... Um, the foreign exchange traders have been dismissed from City that um, the actual processes involved were inadequate. Um, and this was found again. You know, um, technically, they dismissed him in the wrong fashion. However, the judge, um, employment judge Alison Russell, who's um, presided over a couple of these things now, um, also said that you know he clearly contributed to his own um, dismissal and would have been, you know, he would have been dismissed according to his actions. It's just they did it in the wrong fashion. So he gets the ceiling of um, £78,000, I think it is, um, and no reinstatement. I'm not sure what the appeal cases are here, but I think um, the fact is um, it's probably now over and done with. Um, one for the fun, one for those of us like a bit of fun. Um, I read the um, InTouch FX survey of their, of, of their clients uh, this weekend, or last weekend, sorry, um, with some interest because if nothing else, it struck me that there's a lot of uncertainty in the market. Um, you know, there was there were a few consensuses. You know, Trump will push the uh, the stock markets higher, but when it comes to the dollar, there there's a real it's either ambivalence or uncertainty, which means one of two things: either come the come the election in November we're likely to have a really good two-way market leading in and maybe even coming out of the market with you know, plenty of volatility on a reasonable scale that people can actually enjoy and um, hopefully um, make some good money out of. Alternatively, of course, this ambivalence could be that, that the ambivalence angle could mean that um, nobody really cares and that they view the Oval Office now as just a function of the executive um, and therefore, as you could argue has been the case um, for quite a few years now, uh, whoever's in the Oval Office doesn't really matter when it comes to the dollar. And I think this is one of the things of being a globalised currency, isn't it? You know, the US is a giant economy, but the fact is it's you know relatively small when the rest of the world uses the dollar as well. So that was an interesting survey. It might give us something to look forward to as we sit here looking at markets that have seemed to have given up moving. Um, on which note, quick side note, I noticed um, a few people getting excited about Bitcoin having a, quote, flash crash, unquote. When I looked it up, I think it dropped $1,000, which I think to most of us that sort of, you know, started watching Bitcoin maybe four or five years ago is um, what we would call a normal move for one hour. Um, finally, the, the turnover data came out um, through me, I have to say, because normally it comes out in July and it came out in August, which I think is obviously a reflection of the, you know, the, the chaos wrought by the pandemic. Um, turnover was down. I don't think anyone's surprised by that. Um, just the regional anomalies surprised me. You know, Japan and Australia were actually up, whilst um, the UK was down the most, um, which suggests to me that maybe 
we were in a market where there were less speculators than usual. And therefore, um, the UK being the most liquid FX market probably would suffer the most. Because if you're going to, if you're going to try and get a deal done in FX at the moment, it's, um, probably wise to try it in, 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 um, European hours. So the turnover data was, yeah, I mean, I think it's likely to be pretty unique actually, and it could become a historical document given the fact that it was taken in the midst of a pandemic, albeit not at the height of the, um, volatility in March, but certainly we were in the midst of, of, of this ongoing crisis with, you know, lockdowns, people working from home. So it could become a pretty unique document in terms of how the uh, the market behaved. Equally, we might come to October and next April if hopefully things are relatively normalized and find that it's exactly the same, which means we've been all trading electronically from all different locations all along. So it means nothing. Um, on that bright note, we'll be back after this break with our guest. Did you know that if you sign up before September 1st, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on your regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to www.profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. In May this year, um, Mosaic Smart Data launched a new service called FX Liquidity um, in conjunction with CLS and Japanese bank MUFG. Um, now, obviously, you know, market data has become a huge industry over the past couple of years, and it just shows no signs of slowing down. So I'm delighted to be joined by Matthew Hodgson, who's CEO and founder of Mosaic Smart Data. So talk about market conditions and, and data services in general. I'm sure we'll get onto a bit of philosophy at some stage. Um, so Matt, welcome to the podcast. Um, First up, so can you explain to us, you know, a little sort of the basics of FX liquidity? You know, what does the data look at and, and how is it collated and analyzed? Well, firstly, thanks very much for having me, Colin. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Yes, FX liquidity is a, a service that between the three firms being CLS, uh, the largest FX settlement system globally, and uh, MUFG, which I think everybody knows just, uh, you know, how... Uh, enormous and prestigious um, Mitsubishi UFG group is um, and Mosaic Smart Data. The collaboration came about largely given the fact that we'd gone through enormous volatility from late February until around about the 20th of March. And that was when the first conversation started to take place. And that was really a case, uh, was was use case driven. And uh, the questions that were coming specifically uh, from MUFG were how do we improve the advice we can give to our clients around when they should express risk and when they should mitigate risk and apply hedging to the markets. The challenge is is that we've become so volatile in the market, people are completely unaware as to when the best periods of liquidity will reside. And uh, and so it's rather a guessing game. Is there anything you could do to assist us in, in, in guiding clients? And so that's when we stepped into action and, and we started to work and that we had already been doing R&D uh, with CLS. And we really just got down and started to look at, uh, you know, really data dumps uh, on volume data. Uh, we accessed uh, order book data from MUFG. So that was really an aggregated order book view of the currencies we were analyzing. And so what we're talking about is really some of the, 
the largest FX crosses. Um, so really, we analyzed 11 uh, the majors as well as emerging market and Asian currencies. And, and then uh, where we stepped in was applying advanced analytics to that data. And that really was looking at creating term structure. So creating an index uh, to identify uh, when liquidity was, uh, was most relevant and prevalent uh, during the 24-hour period. So really looking at a GMT period uh, between midnight and, uh, and, and, uh, and on a 24-hour rolling period. And, and, and really looking at uh, creating a guidance system uh, for, for the clients to decide when those best window, windows of liquidity exist. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean, I, something like this is, is a simple idea and, and you wonder why it hasn't been, been done before because I, I look at it and think, you know, if I look at some of the flash moves we've seen over the past <clears throat> three or four years in FX, a lot of them have happened in that sort of pre-Tokyo Australia-only period. So it would probably be handy if we have some sort of index that says, okay, <clears throat> um, well, if you want to execute then um, in any sort of amount, you're an idiot, which at least then takes away this oh, I didn't know the market would do that sort of thing. So I'm all for it personally. Um, so in terms of like the, you've given the sort of, you know, MUFG as a use case scenario, but if I'm looking at the business, obviously there's a lot more facets to my business I want to look at. How am I going to use the data? What sort of like, you know, use cases can I provide? Can you provide? Yeah, well, I mean, so, you know, you make a very good point. And I think the key to it really was this idea that liquidity has become very congested. So during the 24-hour period before COVID, we'd see fairly flat profiles of liquidity availability. So if you look at dollar-yen, there was really, uh, I don't want to say pure liquidity through the 24-hour period. Of course, in in the period going into Tokyo Open, dollar-yen, you'd see a a dip-off in liquidity. But largely, it was a very, very much um, a consistent liquidity available. Um, now, when you look at that, it's much uh, more congested. So the windows of opportunity to access liquidity are really during, you know, in most cases, during the London period. And then what do we find, actually, as London closes, the liquidity sharply drops off. So you may only get to less than 50% of the liquidity available that you could access and have previously accessed in the pre-COVID periods. So that's, that, you know, I think that that's one of the certain findings that we've, uh, we've identified with the study. But really, in terms of the use cases, if you think about it, I mean, what we, we look at in terms of the methodology, and so I think the key to it really is that can you create an index of liquidity? It's, a, it's a, as you say, it's something that the market's certainly been after. And really, I think it's the bringing together of three disciplines, which is firstly, can you get the volume data and relevant volume data? So we use uh, CLS uh, hourly aggregated price feeds. Uh, we also look at... Um, as I mentioned, the MUFG aggregated order book data. And, and what we look at is, is really a, a multi-factor time series. Um, it's a machine learning model that looks at uh, market impact. So how resilient the market is to large transactions. How quickly does the market move back to its previous levels after it's absorbed that, uh, that volume? We look at a, a normalized buy-sell imbalance. We look at percentage of gross volume being settled in hourly buckets. We also look at the autocorrelation in the data. So really those four uh, variables allow us to create an index of liquidity. And that index allows us then to compare currency crosses across the group that we are analyzing. So what we can say is on an index of, of zero to one, where zero is uh, essentially zero liquidity and, and one being perfect liquidity, you can start to see 
how the markets are evolving. And what we've identified now is that G10 currencies are sitting at between 70 and 75% of their previous liquidity. EM currencies are in, in, under, still under more stress. What we've, had, uh, we, what we've observed is that uh, the bid offer spreads in EM currencies are largely trading at about 50% wider than they were before we hit the crisis. Um, spreads uh, are still elevated in the G10, uh, certainly not um, as aggressively as, as the EM. But also what is a good indicator of the stress in the market is the amount of volume that's been traded. Now, a lot of people would say, you know, more volume means more liquidity, and that's a good thing. But it's really the directionality of the flow. So what we did see during the worst of times was volume across the major currencies spike aggressively. And that volume was really, um, it wasn't um, balanced volume. It, the supply-demand imbalance uh, was aggressively uh, in favor of people unwinding risk. What we've seen now is that those volumes have come back much more into line. And in some currencies, actually, those volumes are actually trading below their pre-COVID levels. Interestingly enough, actually, in emerging markets, uh, we're now seeing volumes actually below their pre-COVID levels. All right. I mean... <clears throat> I guess it's one of the things, it's one of the things that I think great, in my mind, great data um, analytics provides um, confirmation of what the experts already know, but it's a really valuable resource for those that do not spend every minute of every day looking at foreign exchange markets, for instance. You know, I think, you know, most foreign exchange traders would, would know that once London goes home, liquidity thins out, but it's actually the, the people taking the service that don't really get that. And I think your point on directionality is 100% on because... Yeah, I just point in. I just point people in the direction of the fix, four pm fix. Ten times the average volume probably goes through in that five minute window, um, yeah. and we still get the biggest moves because it's all very well having volume, but if it's all going one way, um, yeah. you're seeing the steamroller on, aren't you? Um, yes, and indeed, that you know, Colin, that filters into our liquidity term structure model, and yeah. so when you, when you start to identify that uh, that imbalance, that of course is a is a good indicator that actually liquidity is eroding. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, that's certainly something that's observable weekly in, in terms of our updates. We, we update our website, so mosaicsmartdata.com forward slash FX liquidity on a weekly basis. So on a Monday morning, uh, the, latest, uh, the latest results are there. But just to come back to your original question, which is, you know, how does this help the FX community? And I think one of the challenges that the FX communities had which is that market data is so enormously expensive and, and not everybody has access uh, to significant budgets to buy this market data and to do their own analysis. And what we decided as three organizations is that actually for the benefit of the entire market, we would come together and we'd offer this as a free service and, we'd, and then update it weekly. So that was um, a philosophical agreement between the three firms that we weren't going to try and generated profit from this. This was uh, purely a service to the market, which is that actually if you supply this kind of intelligence to the market, it's beneficial to everybody and ultimately to the liquidity in the market, which ultimately then helps with the stability across uh, the entire community. And so that was something that uh, we, we were really focused on at the beginning. Once we sat down together, we said, look, um, we are going to contribute equally um, as three organizations. And of course, you know, getting together and uh, you know, a, a three-way or tri-party legal negotiation can be challenging. In fact, we could have gone to market faster. Uh, we indeed had the microsite up and running within 24 hours. And then what we needed to do was go through model validation. 
So the model validation is really a case of saying, you know, you come up with a machine learning model, you know, are, are there any factors within that model uh, that need uh, need to have um, you know, essentially scrutiny on it? And I think, you know, four eyes is always um, the philosophy that we adhere to. So mm. uh, our chief scientific advisor is the chair of mathematical finance at Oxford University, Professor Rami Kant. He's, um, he's a world expert uh, on machine learning and finance. So he validates all of our models. And so that liquidity term structure is something uh, that he worked with our head of data science on. And uh, where it goes to next, and I think this is really the point, which is that you know, people have a, a view backwards as to when was the liquidity available, and we, we certainly provide that today. The question is, can you provide an out-of-sample rather than an in-sample view of when liquidity is available, i.e. the next 24 hours, when will yeah. liquidity be best served? And so that's certainly something that uh, we have in plan to bring to the market. It will nest and be a natural extension to the Mosaic Smart Data analytics platform and uh, and we know that that is certainly something that a number of our clients have been asking for mm-hmm. the, the focus has been uh, on 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 this idea that if you can give people much greater guidance and and i think confidence as to when they should be accessing the market and also when to expect uh, periods of volatility you can give them a service which is far more tailored and far more specific to their needs that's really what it's all about yeah i mean it's an interesting one isn't it because i think you know I always look at these things and say, oh, yeah, obviously everyone wants to look, everybody wants to look into the future. Um, <clears throat> and I, I totally understand that we can, we can offer them broad guidance around it. But I, then I always come back to every time I see an investment proposal from my asset manager, it will always have at the bottom about 20 pages of, you know, um, future disclosures may not, or future performance may not reflect past performance. And you mm. know, this could all go horribly wrong if one thing happens. And I think that's, something that will always be the case isn't it i mean you'll always have outliers even with data the fact is you know we could have a very per we could have a really good liquidity pattern but if somebody says something stupid and i'm not mentioning any names mr trump um <laughs> then all of a sudden market liquidity disappears absolutely and we I mean, we cannot predict for that can we um something that did strike me there actually when you were talking was you know with creating this sort of look do you think there's a situation whereby we get the sort of data analytics we're getting from Mosaic and liquidity kind of gravitates to certain windows because, you know, it, it, the old, the, one of the oldest adages in the market is liquidity begets liquidity. So yes. if we can sort of highlight how, do, do you sort of envisage a time when actually we become a more focused market? It'll always be 24 hours, but we become maybe more focused in certain windows. You know, I think that that's, I would say a risk. Um, I, I would argue that I think the market is far better off by having a far smoother profile of liquidity available yeah. in the 24-hour periods. I think when you get congestion of liquidity, and certainly in some of the emerging markets, we see that already, where you have very, very tight periods when liquidity is available, and then these long tails of, of spreads that gap much wider and, and volumes that just simply um, won't allow any absorption of decent yeah. size um, execution. So. I, I would say, frankly, that's actually a risk in the market. And I think, you know, I'm hoping that as we come out of COVID and things start to stabilize, interestingly enough, you know, we've seen a move back in, in the majors in spreads and volumes very much back to pre-COVID levels. That is despite the fact that liquidity is still compromised. And that's largely because of these, these variables being, you know, your autocorrelation, 
yeah. you, and your supply and demand imbalance, and of course your market impact. These are, of course, um, you know, the key drivers of that liquidity profile. But what is interesting is that those spreads appear to be coming back much more in line with majors. I, 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 would, I would just add uh, on, on that point, which is that, you know, I think the market is, is you know, it, if you think of the FX market, it's the biggest market in the world. Um, and, you know, having smooth profiles for access to liquidity um, across that global community, I think is beneficial to everybody. And I think you need to get congestion and windows of congestion. I don't think it really suits long-term global growth. Mm. I think um, sometimes FX suffers from its own marketing, doesn't it? It's, yes, it is yeah. the largest market in the world, but um, I think then we get to the stage where some non-experts suddenly believe that it's okay to stick two billion pounds through a market in one minute and um, everything becomes a lot more, um, a lot more challenging, doesn't it? I mean, the thing on spreads is interesting because I think there was a, ref- there was a recent Refinitive survey on spreads um, as being customers' biggest concern. Um, now, I'll be interested in sort of, you know, <clears throat> how you sort of view... Uh, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm interested to hear your view, your view around what spreads have done as in they've come back to pre-COVID levels because um, I always look at it and think to myself, if you're looking at an aggregated pool of liquidity, then the spread is what it is. It's reflecting the risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've lost the collusion in the market, thankfully, that we, have, that we allegedly have had maybe a decade ago around spreads for certain customers. But generally speaking, if you've got an aggregated pool, I would argue you're seeing the appropriate risk. Is that a fair analysis? And does, would data kind of back that up? Data science back that up? I think exactly. I think, you know, spreads are really, um, you know, it's, it's a second order view in terms of the risk associated that the liquidity provider will be assuming in terms of um, executions in that environment. Um, and I think what we've seen is been interesting was just how, how much spreads gapped during that uh, COVID period. In fact, if you look at, uh, for instance, you know, dollar-yen is a classic case in point. Uh, dollar-yen, at, at really at its worst point, was um, you know, actually in the aftermarket, you'd see spreads wider by between 9 and 10 10 pips in the, yeah. in the normal market, you see spreads actually sub two pips, and that's really where we've got back to. Um, yeah. In the in the but even during um, you know the, the trading day uh, in 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 that that really challenging period of that COVID peak period, so from the back end of February to to your back end of March period, mm. you know dollar yen was trading just under three pips wide. So you know you'd seen a significant widening. What's interesting, I, I would say, with spreads is that you know it's it sort of appears to be really uh, you know I would say there's a, a division of two halves here. You know, spreads in uh, in the G10 are, are still wider, and um, and we're seeing a, a spreads wider by between 15 and 20 percent. But interestingly enough, the spread it does appear that spreads are more stressed in your commodity currencies. Hmm. So you look at your Aussie, for instance. Um, you're seeing spreads are still wider by uh, more than 30%. Your CAD is wider by 20%. Um, and, um, and then if you look at um, you know, your emerging markets, uh, your emerging markets are still very much uh, under stress. So if you look at your Mexican, for instance, uh, you're looking at just between 70 and 75% wider than it was pre-COVID. So, so you, you, you're certainly still seeing this, this, this risk um, inclination that you know people are are still incredibly, I would say, fearful of of of, of those um, of those markets where, yeah, they just simply can't absorb the volume. 
And, and that's the thing. I mean, it spreads is, a, is effectively a fear, a fear indicator, isn't it? Um, and we live in nervous times and uncertain times. So it doesn't surprise me. Um, and I have to say, this is where regular listeners of the podcast roll their eyes and start groaning. But um, I'll dip back into my trading career of the last century. And so I can remember cable spreads being 100 points wide in 1 million on certain days. Now, that's yeah. a liquidity for you. <laughs> it could, you know, so yes, nine, ten pips in dolly yen. Guess what, people? It could get a lot worse. You never know. Um, well, exactly. And, you know, what's interesting, you know, the, the market that we saw rebound back to its pre-COVID levels, the fastest was the Swiss franc. In fact, if you look at spreads in the Swiss mm. today, they're actually trading tighter than they were pre-COVID. And that's largely due to the fact that it's a flight to quality. So, you know, Swiss spreads are, are, are about 10% tighter than they were before COVID hit us. So that is, um, I think that's exactly to your point, Colin. Yeah. And if, you, and if you want to know exactly how easily a central bank can mess up a, a foreign exchange market, even the Swiss, you know, you look at what happened in 2015 when they pulled the plug there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So Matt, one final, one final thing I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on as well, actually. I mean, it's more general philosophical around data. I mentioned at the top, there's a lot of data out there. There's a lot of providers. I guess it's that inevitable surge that you get when you get a good business idea. You know, you get this influx of providers. Um, I think we're now at the stage where, you know, the industry pushes back and says, actually, I'm, I've got all this data. I took all the data I could, but do I need it all? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my data spend is actually um, needs trimming. What in your mind needs to happen here what should people be looking at in terms of the data sets they're accessing to make them match you know to give them some sort of value rather than just taking everything you know it's a, you've asked a, i think the most pertinent question because if you imagine that uh, data spending continues to rise i mean you're looking at about between a five and eight percent annual spending increase in market data so if you look at uh, how much the industry spent on market data last year alone, you're looking at uh, just north of $32 billion. And what is interesting is that if you look at um, you know, budgets, uh, technology budgets across the street, and if you, if you think about uh, a classic case on the sell side, for instance, which is that you would imagine that technology budgets, given the benefits of you know, cloud computing, of open source software and, uh, and, and APIs, which are, you know, um, are now de rigueur. You'd imagine that technology budgets should come down. And in fact, technology budgets really across the street have largely remained unchanged. And they've remained unchanged because people are spending more and more on market data. And I think that that, that joke is actually now finally starting to wear thin. And really it's a case of this idea that people are spending on market data, but they're not transforming it and they're not refining it. And the key to it then is to say, well, actually, we're sitting on this, this raw material, we're buying this raw material, but what can we do to put it to purpose? And unless you take the market data and the transaction data and make sure that you have clean and consistent reference data, you're at a significant competitive disadvantage. So the benefits of, of bringing data together, so the challenge in fixed income today, and it's, uh, it's, it's the primary area that we focus on, which is to say, in fixed income, the FICC markets, where it's rates or credit, cash or derivatives, course foreign exchange, the challenge is that the market doesn't adhere to a common messaging protocol. And therefore, if you're looking at transactions across various venues, how do you bring everything into one consolidated place of understanding? So if I want to understand the performance of my business, how do I do that in any 
way which allows me to then make decisions in real time. I can't do that because I haven't normalized or harmonized my data. So to answer your question, the first place to begin is to say, let's bring all of our transaction records into coherence against what we call a target data model. And once we've done that, we can start to do very interesting and, and creative things. So the first place we begin is by doing what we call an as-of join. And an as-of join is bringing the market data associated with that transaction record at the time of trade and marrying it to the transaction record. Now, one of the powerful features of that is that you can start to look at the market impact of the trade. So if you can do that at the trade level, you can now do it at the aggregate level. So I can start to look at, say, well, you know, how quickly does the market erode when I trade dollar yen with asset managers versus hedge funds or with one client versus their peer group or one client against another? These are the sorts of insights that really drive value in terms of how do you segment where you can drive value from your relationships, whether you're buy side or sell side, whether you're a custodian, whether you're an exchange, an ECN, or even a regulator. Everybody has a need, a different dimension on what they'd like to see from the data. But unless you bring it into some level of coherence, and that means cleansing it, enriching it, and then streaming it through a real-time processing engine, you can't look for those outliers in the data that surface and ability to deliver uh, intelligence across an organization. That's precisely what we focus on. And I think it's one of the reasons why uh, we were approached by NUFG because uh, you know, they knew that we were working with CLS. And of course, you know, I think the key to it is, is what are the insights that we can generate and then deliver those insights to our salespeople, our traders, ultimately our clients. That's what it's all about. And so that, 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 that was how we turned our, our architecture, the Mosaic uh, software, to this problem of liquidity. And one of the benefits, of course, of that is that, you know, if you look at the reports on, on, the, on, the, on the blog, or at least on the microsite, they're all generated by natural language generation. So we don't sit there and write reports weekly about each of the currencies and how the spreads and the volumes and the term structures change. The machine does that for you and picks up the patterns and describes those patterns. Um, and so that's the, one of the benefits of, of applying uh, that level of technology to a use case like this. And that is that you can get very significant results and deliver value to a large audience of people. And, uh, and, and, and you know, I think, and, and, you know, that's the point, which is that, you know, at the end of the day, unless you're adding value to people, uh, you're probably in the wrong business. Yeah. Yeah. Machines writing reports. And there was me thinking that my job was safe. There we go. Um, Matt, that was fascinating. Thank you. Um, I think it's, it's an, an area that we're going to keep on coming back to because I think, uh, um, this, you know, let's say the data surge is probably near its peak and we now start looking at actually, um, without wishing to give any plug because we're not one of the things, but we'll start looking at smart data and smart analytics, don't we? So, Matt, thank you very much for your time today. Um, to our listeners, thank you for listening and have a very good week and we'll be back next week. Thanks. Thanks again. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today, Colin. Thank you.